God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. I use that familiar prayer to introduce the subject this morning, accepting my lot in life. Have you accepted your lot in life? It is a privilege to be here this morning, and a privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus. When you think of a lot in life, when it doesn't go well and it's difficult, he is our best example. We remember the time when he struggled with his lot in life and prayed the Father, if there's any alternative, let the cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. May that be our approach as we consider accepting my lot in life. What do we mean by the lot in life? What is my lot in life? You all have a personal lot in life. It's the sum total of the things that describe who you are that came to you through no choice of your own. You were born with a lot in life. You couldn't choose your parents. You couldn't choose the country you were born in, your citizenship. How different it would have been to be born in the country of Iran, in a Muslim family. It would have made all the difference in the world. You didn't choose the church family you were born into. You didn't choose your siblings. You didn't choose your abilities. You didn't choose your intellect, your natural talents. My lot in life. There's another lot in life, and that is the consequences of the choices I've made. I make choices in life, and then that becomes part of my lot in life. I choose a job, and I accept the lot that goes with that job. I choose marriage, and I accept the commitment and responsibilities that come with that. There's another lot in life that I'd like for us to consider, and that is more of a collective lot. One that I think probably describes everyone here to a degree. We're not all born with this lot in life, and some of you maybe have not experienced it, but in general, those of us who are here, this probably to a degree describes our collective lot in life. Let's just summarize briefly. Born in a Mennonite home, we were taught a set of values that make us a distinctive, a distinctive culture. People look at you when you walk through Walmart. We were taught the Bible's the word of God and it's authoritative and should be applied in practical ways to our lives. 
We were taught that obedience, church attendance, and loving Jesus was important. That Jesus loves us and we should love everyone. You accepted Jesus' teaching on love and non-resistance. When someone hits you, you don't hit back. Lessons that we learn very early in life. You share your toys. You were taught that Christians maintained a separation from the state and didn't participate in government or patriotic events or voting. You were taught family values, or maybe not taught as much as simply you understood them, that marriage was a lifetime commitment. You probably grew up with multiple siblings. You probably understood traditional roles of marriage, of a husband, father as the breadwinner, and mothers, keepers at home. You weren't just taught that, but you knew that marriage was for one man and one woman. And you were created the gender that God wanted you to be. There was no question whether you would be a man or a woman. You were taught simplicity and modesty and dress that were somewhat prescribed by your church. Things that were distinctive. Covered heads, cape dress, plain suit. You were taught that the world's influence from TV and radio and education would tend to draw you away from the faith. You learned brotherhood, that you're in this with others, and you care for each other and you support each other through the good times. You rejoice with those that rejoice. And you weep and console and comfort those who are weeping. And you learned an accountability to each other. That you weren't just in this for yourself, but accountable to each other. You learned respect for elders, parents and grandparents, church leaders, teachers in school. You learned that it was important to submit, even at times when you didn't understand why. Respect and submission was ingrained in the culture. You learned that education and learning was a means to godliness and not an end in itself. And when we put those things, combine them in some, they describe, and can I say it this way, a culture, a lifestyle of holiness, a lifestyle that was separated unto God. It struck me some years ago when one of my friends who early in his married life had chosen to leave that profile that I described and walked away, came to an old order funeral, and his comment was that he, as far as holiness of life and lifestyle, there's no greater the example that he sees within this culture. Does that resonate with you this morning? Does that... 
Are you convinced that what you have been given, that collective lot in life, is a good lot in life? Something that is worth living and worth passing on to the next generation. You know, I think that is possibly the single most important factor in passing on the faith is the fact that I am absolutely convinced that it is the right way. Or maybe I should say it is a right way. And there's a difference. We understand that it's not the only way, but it may be the only way for me. We're not saying that it is the right way. And I think sometimes when we consider our our collective culture, our lot in life, that we can get to that point where we see ourselves up here and everyone else down here. And that's not the point at all. It's not that it makes us better, but I do believe that it brings an accountability for the things that we have been given. It's not the right way, but it may be the right way for me. It may be. There's an accountability there. Now, possibly you connect and and I will admit that the, the picture that I described is an ideal. It's the ideal picture. And life is not ideal. Our culture is not ideal. You maybe have seen and experienced the difficulties, the hard part. What do we do when the lot that we have been given, our particular story, doesn't make sense? You know, maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, yes, I I was taught love and non-resistance and then I went home and it was different at home. I was taught obedience in church, but maybe obedience was something that was demanded and maybe angrily demanded. What do we do? when our lot in life doesn't make sense? What about the times when somebody who's in a position of love and trust over me takes advantage of me and hurts me? Where is God when innocent children are abused by someone who should be nurturing and caring for them? What do we do when there's unfaithfulness in marriage? Or when roles are reversed and dad is passive and mom is controlling. What does the Krauss family do when their daughter and sister is taken and found to be brutally murdered? What do we do when the cold hand of cancer reaches in and touches somebody we love? That was something I personally experienced in 2010, and some of you here have as well. And life 
comes to a standstill and things don't make sense. She was ready to go, but oh, how she wanted to stay. We were at the stage of our children getting married and she knew she would never see the grandchildren that we have today. What do we do when our lot doesn't make sense? What do you do when somebody, in 1984, we built or we um, purchased what we thought was a dream place in the country, 80 acres, quiet and secluded, nice neighborhood, nice neighbors. And then 16 years later, the neighbors half a mile north of us decided to expand and determined that the best place to put the manure pit is on their acreage immediately to the west of us across the road. How do I handle that lot in life? That unfairness that reminds me multiple times every week about responding in love to offenses and and I haven't always done well with that. I think overall we've we have accepted it, but it'll hit me again when Jeannie and I go home in another month and the wind is from the west and we'll know we're home because the manure pit is right there. accepting my lot in life. And turn with me to Psalm 16. And the background to this is the children of Israel and the Levites and their lot in life. You remember when they went into Canaan, all of the tribes, the land was divided by lot. And so they each inherited a piece of land that stayed in that tribe and was passed from generation to generation. But the Levites were the exception. The Lord was to be their lot in life, their portion. They depended on the things that people brought to the Lord, the tithes and the offerings. And so here in the psalm, David uses the Levites' lot in life, their portion being the Lord. He claims that as a metaphor for his own lot. Psalm 16 and verse 5. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel, my reins also instruct me in the night seasons. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup, thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen to me in pleasant places. Now, was David's lot in life always pleasant? Were all of those lines that he drew around his life pleasant? What about the years that he spent on the run from Saul, chased 
like a partridge on the mountains. What about when he worked through his own failures and sin? What about the rebellion of his own son, Absalom, and the consequences of that? And yet he was able to look back and say, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen in pleasant places. The portion of his inheritance, the cup, and the lot all refer to the same thing. The sum of circumstances which made up his life. What am I doing with the sum of the circumstances that make up my life? I'd like to consider some keys in accepting my lot in life. And to do that, we will look at another passage of Scripture, Matthew 16, excuse me, Matthew 20. And this is the teaching of Jesus, a story he told that emphasizes the sovereignty of God and a very unfair picture of life, a very difficult lot. Matthew 20 and verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle, and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So an even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more, and they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. The key takeaway from this parable 
One is that it does describe a very unfair situation. Our natural inclinations go to the ones who came in, or the ones who started early in the morning. And no, the wages were not fair. And no, it's not a good pattern for employers to use for their employees, even though they might have the right to do so. So it does describe an unfair situation. But verse 15 is the key to understanding and accepting my lot in life. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Isn't it right for God as my creator and the one who gave me the specific lot that I have? Doesn't he have the right to do what he will with his own? There are a lot of unfairnesses that we could could um, impose, superimpose on this parable. The Jews were called, called first. Jesus came to his own and his own received them not. The Gentiles came in late and the Gentiles received an equal place to the Jews. The apostles listened to this parable and were called first by the Lord. The apostle Paul came in late in life and then in many ways went ahead of them all and left a greater footprint on the church. Was there opportunity for the other apostles to think that might have been a little unfair? Some come to life, Christ, early in life and some at the end of life, and all have the same reward. The parable is typical of a lifespan. Of a lifespan. Life is short. Let's say that it has a 12-hour day. None of us knows where we are on that clock, but some only get to 1 o'clock, and they're called home. Some bear the burden, the heat of the day, and come to the eleventh hour and are called home. The other thing that we have to think about this parable is that life is not fair. And the sooner that we determine that and understand that the things that happen to me probably are not fair, That's not the question. The question is, what do I do when life isn't fair? These thoughts first uh, came together to me after we came home from a funeral of a mother who was in the prime of her life. She had 13 children, and it seemed like her work wasn't done. She was a pastor's wife, a bishop's wife, and she heard the the um, diagnosis, terminal cancer, and was sick for a year and, and finally accepted the fact that she would be leaving this world. But the comment that she made as she approached the end of her life, and she, she did it cheerfully, almost superhumanly cheerfully, but 
but by the time she came to the end of her life, she said, the thing that I didn't consider was how hard it would be to die. I'm ready to go, and she found it difficult that God was keeping her and making her linger. And then just two weeks before she passed away, her 83-year-old father suddenly died of a heart attack. And so she had her father's funeral to deal with while she was facing the end of life. Some die young, some in old age. Some die suddenly. Some linger for weeks, months, and years. Some are given much as far as gifts and talents. Some are given much materially, and others struggle throughout life. Some are born with severe physical limitations. Others go through life without ever experiencing pain. Some are born with the privilege of Christian teaching and training, and some are born into extreme darkness. What else can we learn in thinking about accepting my lot in life? While life is not fair, God is righteous, and his judgments are always right. Whatsoever is right, that ye shall receive. God understands the unfairnesses that we face. And sometimes we console ourselves with the thought that God will balance the equation, right? All things work together for good to them that love God. So while I'm going through this difficulty, I have the confidence that later in my life that will come into balance. And I'm not sure that that is right. God will, he is righteous. His judgments are righteous and always right. And in the end, eternally, it will be balanced. But in this life, maybe not. Maybe it will and maybe it won't. But it is for our eternal good. God always keeps his end of the covenant. His, the promises in God are always yea and amen. Did I not agree for a penny a day? The first shall be last and the last first. And that is the upside-down kingdom that we live in. Much wrong thinking is blamed on God's goodness. The master said, Is thine eye evil because I am good? Are you having a bad attitude because of God's mercy on somebody else's life? That's what happened to the prodigal. Not the prodigal. The other brother. The elder brother. This was not fair. He had served all these years. And the brother had wasted the father's substance and his inheritance. Did that justify the elder brother's attitude? Was he, are you having a bad attitude today and showing envy because of God's mercy to those who come in at the 11th hour? That was Jonah's problem as well. He experienced God's mercy in his own life. But Nineveh, no, they deserve judgment. Let's be careful that 
We don't blame, think wrong because of God's mercy and his justice for other people's lives. Some conclusions about God's sovereignty. You can always trust the sovereignty of God. When life doesn't make sense and you don't know why something is happening, that is the one thing that you can be confident of, that it is right for God to do what he wills with his own. So you can always trust God's sovereignty. Secondly, it's better to accept God's sovereignty than to try to explain it. Better to accept it than to try to explain it, because it won't make sense if we try to explain it. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I raised up Pharaoh that I might show my power in thee. And we look at that and... We say with those who concluded in Romans, well, why does God judge us then if, if uh, he does these things? Better to accept God's sovereignty than to try to explain it. Very quickly, God's sovereignty then doesn't exclude his other attributes. And so while he's sovereign, in his sovereignty, he gives us his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his grace his immutability, his justice. His sovereignty doesn't exclude his other attributes. Everything that happens to me goes through the filter of God's sovereignty. Whether it is by divine design or divine permission, by the time it comes to me, it is God's will for me. And there are different thoughts on how God arranges the events in our lives, I choose to think that he doesn't necessarily direct everything that happens to me. God sets in order, set in order at, at uh, creation, laws of nature and inheritance and genetics and that are, that determine much of what happens to us personally, and then sin and the fall of man determine much of what happens to us, and that's one thing when 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 the profile that I talked about, and we wonder where God is, we don't blame God for those the evil that happens happens in the world. Everything goes through the filter of God's sovereignty, but it isn't necessarily directed by him. I don't know how Dennis views his situation that he's dealing with. Did God look at Dennis and say, I think you need this cancer in your life to deal with? Probably not. You may argue with me, maybe Dennis would argue with me. But Dennis was given in a certain set of genetics and he experienced maybe some exposure to things and risk factors and, and all of those things came together. Yes, it did go through God's filter and so in the end, it doesn't matter why things happened the way they did. By the time they come to me, they are God's will for me. 
God's sovereignty doesn't interfere with my choices. It is still how I choose to respond to the unfairness of life and not the circumstances, the lot itself, that determines who I am. It is still how I choose to respond to those difficult things. God's sovereignty doesn't interfere with intercessory prayer. God is sovereign and he has given us the ability, the command to pray, to ask him for things. And so if you try to analyze that and think about it, no. It shouldn't affect what happens over here on God's side as I pray. But God has given us that that privilege. His sovereignty doesn't interfere with intercessory prayer. The sovereignty as God is taught in Scripture in parallel with our choices. And that, for me, is a way of, of thinking about the sovereignty of God in my choice. If you look at Scripture from the beginning, Genesis through Revelation, you always see the sovereignty of God on one side and then the choice that God gives man to do. Even the book of Romans chapter 9 and that great dissertation on on God's sovereignty is given in parallel to Paul's plea to his own people to accept what God has provided for them. And he comes to the end of that section when he thinks about God's sovereignty and his people, the Jewish people, And he comes to the conclusion, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him? And it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The sovereignty of God, his unsearchable, unknowing ways in parallel, they don't contradict each other, they don't cross each other, but they run side by side. And if you would stand in front of parallel lines, if you would stand in the middle of a railroad track, and you look to the distance, you find that they come together. And so in reality it is one truth the sovereignty of God and the choice of man. If I focus on one, I end up with false doctrine, eternal security, and that teaching is a focus on the sovereignty of God without considering the sovereignty of man. And you can be in the ditch on the other side as well. It is impossible to truly accept my lot in life and God's sovereignty over me without choosing the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. As long as my will is still my will and not God's will, I will struggle with accepting my lot in life. It helps to be honest about your lot in life. If you're going through a particularly tough time or a time of deep hurt or loss, it's okay to 
cry. It's okay to be discouraged and in despair. It's not okay to stay there and to be defeated by it. But it is just part of who we are and part of life. We tend to put a lot of pressure on people to always come to church smiling and to always put our best face forward. But truly, we help each other out most by rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping together with those who weep. Be honest about your lot in life. Joy, yes, it is a fruit of the Spirit, but it is much deeper than simply an emotional being happy and bubbly and and cheerful. Joy can be there even during the times of deep sorrow and deep loss. It's helpful, too, to see my lot in life, particularly the difficulties in your life, when it's hard, as the best opportunity for God to be glorified. Don't miss the opportunity. It is the difficulties in life, the unfairnesses, that offer the best opportunity for God to be glorified. Be honest about life and death. Life is short and terribly irrelevant when you put it up against eternity. And I know that doesn't help the difficult situations, but nonetheless, it's true. Our light afflictions are but for a moment, and they will work a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Have you accepted God's sovereignty in your life? Can you concur with the master in the parable? Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Have you accepted your lot in life? Are you okay with being a lump of clay on the potter's wheel? Do you cherish the things that God has given you? The birth advantages that he has given you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own? Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, Savior, today. Wash me just now, Lord, wash me just now, as in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power, surely is thine. Touch me and heal me, Savior divine. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with my spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. Let's pause for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We are grateful to you for this day. We thank you for Lord's Day. Thank you for the privilege of being together in worship. We thank you for your sovereign will in our lives. We struggle to accept it at times, Lord, but I just pray that you would give us the grace to understand your sovereignty. 
Lord, you know the situations that are represented here in this congregation. And I pray that as we go from here, that we would determine anew to claim and accept your sovereignty in our lives. Pray that you could be glorified in the things that you bring into my life and into each one that is here this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his example in, in um, being willing to come to you and, and say, not my will, but thine be done. We thank you for the finished work of Calvary, the cross, and that we can approach and come to you through the living Lord Jesus this morning. I pray you would continue to guide us in life, prepare us for the time when you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.